Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay, hello everybody. Um, this is webyeshiva.org, and we are studying More Nevuchim, The Guide for the Perplexed by Maimonides. We are in the first section. We are going to be studying chapter 63 today. Um, and if you're following along in the Pines edition, which is the version that we've been using this whole time in English, it's on page 153 in the uh, Chicago University Press edition. Um, to get our bearings, what we just finished studying in chapters 60, 61, and 62, continuing along the Rambam's negative theology of God, uh, that God cannot be known by any positive attributes. There was one special case that the Rambam told us about, which is the Shem HaMeforash, God's ineffable name. We're just going to ask everyone to kindly mute themselves. Um, I'm wondering, Ezra, if you could possibly make me the host again so that we can, I, I'm able to mute people. Because there is someone who is. Uh... No, I'm trying to mute him. It's not letting me do it. Oh, okay. All right. Let us let us continue anyway. In any event, um, the Shem HaMiforash, God's ineffable name, the four-letter name of God, according to the Rambam, actually contained within it its four letters, a description of a being who is necessarily existent, that is, a being who is the uniquely necessary to exist. Um, and that, according to the Rambam, is the entire definition of the Shem HaMifarash. He doesn't have a complete or comprehensive explanation of it in the Moren Vuchim, but he explains that this is essentially the reason why the four-letter name is unique, why it's special, and why it is reserved only for very limited and special uh, s situations, why it is considered to be ineffable, because it, it is most descriptive of the fact that God is the it, a, a unique feature of the Ribbono Shalolam that we don't have permission to use in a very casual way. Okay, so the, uh, the Rambam is going to really, in this chapter, bring across this point that the, the letters Yud K Vav K, the Shem Havaya, the Shem Hamiforash, really define God in terms of himself as being a necessarily existent being. And he's going to do that by providing us with a, um, with a passage where God first introduces himself to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, in the events at the burning bush, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. And uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to bring up this passage, 
And this is really a fascinating chapter, in my opinion, because it, it provides us insights into the Rambam's way of thinking about, number one, prophecy, about, um, uh, about a number of different things that we're going to find are unique in the worldview of the Rambam as far as how he approaches an intellection and an understanding of, of God and how he feels that we can actually prove that God is the necessarily existent being. So I'm going to share my screen now. Just give me one sec. And here we go. All right, I hope everyone can see my screen at this point. And um, you see the title of the, of the presentation today is uh, I am that I am defining God in terms of himself. Now we know that when God uh, uh, describes himself to Moshe, he describes himself as asher which either can be translated as I will be that which I will be, or I am that I am, which is, seems to be, to be the way the Rambam is translating it here. But in order for us to understand the Rambam's whole um, mode of thinking over here, he says, I want to bring across an interesting point, he says, and that is that if you take a look at the entire story of the back and forth between God and Moses at the burning bush. In, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God says to Moses, I'm now going to send you to Paro, and I want you to take my nation, B'nai Israel, out of Egypt. So Moshe turns to God, and I actually have the steps over here. He says, who am I that I should be able to do such a thing? And God responds to Moshe, well, don't worry, it's not just about you, because I'm going to be with you, and, uh, and I will provide you with the fortitude and the strength to be able to fulfill this task, and to be able to uh, confront Paro, and to be able to take the Jews out of Egypt. Then Moshe asks a very bizarre question, and this is in Pasuk Yud Gimel, verse 13, and it's right over here, Vayomri Moshe Elo Elokim. God, that Moshe says to God, he says, I'm going to come to the Jewish people, I'm going to say to them, The God of your forefathers has sent me to you. They are going to say to me, what is his name? What should I say back to them? Now, the Rambam, at the beginning of this chapter, asks a very interesting question about Moshe's question. If you take a look at the text, he says, why was this question necessarily attached to the matter under, the dis under discussion so that Moses demanded to know how he should answer it? Why was Moshe asking this question? This was the most pressing issue that was on Moshe's mind. They're going to ask me your name. And the Rambam asks a mimanaf shach question. He says, no matter how you look at this scenario, it doesn't seem to make very much sense. He says, um, first of all, it's only later that Moshe says that the Jews are not going to believe me. It only, it only happens at the beginning of chapter 4. They're not going to believe me. But over here, Moshe was not concerned that the Jews are not going to believe me. He said, they're going to ask me, what is your name? Now, as the Rambam questions in this first paragraph, he says, 
what is knowing God's name going to help in any way? He says, if the Jews already know that there's a certain name of their future redeemer, the God that is going to redeem them, then why by Moshe telling them the name, is that going to prove that he is the emissary of that God? He may just have heard the name when he was mingling among the Jewish people in Egypt. And if they don't know the name of that redeemer, then how is Moses providing them with the name any kind of proof that he is the authentic emissary of their Redeemer. So the question that Moshe is asking doesn't really seem to make very much sense. And if we look at the sequence, what is, how does God respond to Moshe? He says, Vayomer Elohim el Moshe, eheyeh asher eheyeh. God says to Moshe, I am that I am. That's the, that's the way that God describes himself. Vayomer, Ko tomar livnei Yisrael, so shall you say to bnei Yisrael, eheyeh shelachani alechem. I want you to say that to the Jewish people, that this name that I've just provided to you, eheyeh asher eheyeh, has sent me to you. Then, there's a little bit of an interlude over here that the Rambam does not focus on, but God responds to, God assures Moshe that the Jewish people will listen to you. As it says in verse 18, they will listen to what you have to say. And therefore, you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt. Now, I just want to point out that after God said, He tells Moshe in verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel and explain this concept to them. And, they will, and then in verse 18, they will listen to you. Now, immediately afterwards, a few psukim later, in the beginning of chapter 4, Moses is still standing in front of God, and God has told him, they will listen to you, and everything will be fine. Moshe then turns to God and says, but they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice, because they will say, to, they will say that God did not appear to you. And it's only at that point that God says, okay, you want proof? I'll provide you with proof. I will give you a series of miracles that you will be able to perform for the Jewish people to prove to them that God has dispatched you because you will be able to display supernatural powers. Okay? And so the Rambam says the whole sequence seems to be somewhat out of sync if Moshe is concerned that the Jews are not going to believe him, that he is the emissary of God, why doesn't he ask that at the outset? And how is his asking for God's name in any way a calling card, in any way sort of any kind of evidence that he is the authentic redeemer of Israel? And so let's start with the second paragraph on page 153. He says, you know that in those times the teachings of the Sabians were generally accepted and that all except a few men were idolaters. What he means by the term Sabians are people from the land of Shiva in Hebrew, or Sova in Arabic. What that means is, is that the Rambam was aware, having lived in an Islamic culture, that the precursors to the religion of Islam, who were Arabs living in the Arabian Peninsula, were heathens, were idolaters. And their Quran also discusses the the Sabians, the, the, the people who were pagans or idolaters 
before the advent of the religion of Islam before Muhammad came along. And these people, it's described how they would go to the Kaaba and they would worship multiple deities there. And the point that the Rambam is basically saying is that there were many people who were idolaters in the ancient world. And I mean by that, that they believed in spirits, that they believed that those spirits can be made to descend among men and that they made talismans. At those times, everyone who claimed to be listened to either claimed like Abraham that speculation and reasoning had come to him indicating to him that the world as a whole has a deity, or else he claimed that the spirit of a star or an angel or something similar had descended upon him. And what the Rambam wants to point out is that there was no, in the early advent of uh, the human uh, interaction with uh, celestial forces, the Rambam wants to point out that people generally did not get dispatches from God, that they either came to the conclusion that there were intermediary forces that they could tap into, which is what we call idolatry, which is summoning spirits to perform some kind of benefit for you, or a person would be like Abraham in the ancient world and would come to the conclusion through an intellectual conclusion that there was one supreme being that that is the creator of everything and is ultimately in control of everything. Now, the Rambam over here, in the way that he's speaking, harkens a little bit to the way that he speaks in Hilchot Avodah Zarah in his Mishneh Torah. In his codified laws of idolatry, in the very first chapter, it's a very worthwhile chapter to reference. It has three paragraphs in that very first chapter. The Rambam details the history of idolatry. And he indicates that initially, people were aware that there was, you know, at the very, very dawn of mankind, you know, from Adam and his initial descendants, people were aware that there was a supreme being who was the creator of all that exists. It was that only after the course of time, when people started to tap into intermediary forces and spirits and, and so forth that they felt could come to their aid without having to go directly to the supreme being, to the, to the almighty God, that people started to forget uh, over the course of generations that there was actually a supreme being. And they, and, and they instead, since the practice had become to focus only on these intermediary lower forces, people forgot about the supreme being uh, entirely. In Halacha Bet, the Rambam writes, the kaven she'archu hayamim nishtakach Hashem hanichbad v'hanora mipi kol hayakum umidatam. That over the course of time, sometime in the biblical period, um, God's name became completely forgotten. This is in the times of Abraham. God's name became completely forgotten. V'lohi kiru v'nimtza kol am ha'aretz hanashim v'haketanim that at that point in history, people just be, were, were familiar with the idolatrous icons that were representative of spirit summoning of some intermediate lower force that God had created. They had forgotten about a supreme being. That their, their priests and their leaders, their religious leaders, 
actually believed that there was only power to be found in the stars and the celestial spheres, and that there was no being above that uh, with whom that they could commune and, and draw benefit from. There were only a few choice people who recognized that there was a supreme being and creator, and he lists the very few people, the very few biblical characters that were actually aware of God. And there was no one else that really had a full recognition of God until the advent of Abraham. And he came up with this idea, like his four, his very few forebears, Chanoch, Metushelach, Noach, Shem, and Ever, that there was a supreme being. But beyond that, he went ahead and took it upon himself to try and spread that message throughout the world. But here's the main thing that the Rambam supplements in the Morin of Uchim in our chapter. The Rambam and all of those who came before him understood that the supreme being exists but Avraham came to that conclusion through intellection, through an intellectual speculation about God. This reveals to us that the Rambam's whole understanding of the prophetic experience is triggered by an intellectual achievement. That if a per and we're going to talk about this a lot more as we go further into the Moren of Uchim. But for the Rambam, achieving prophecy can only be done after one has come to an, a, a status of intellectual excellence to appreciate and to contemplate and to meditate about the, about the experience of being, come to the conclusion that there is a supreme creator. And once you've come to that conclusion, you are privy to some divine influence that we call prophecy. But that was a small minority of mankind who were able to do that. Yet that individual should make a claim of prof to prophecy on the ground that God had spoken to him and had sent him on a mission was a thing never heard of prior to Moses, our master. And now the Rambam gives us a real zinger. And he says like this, this was, this experience that Moshe Rabbeinu was having now was an experience that had never happened to anyone who believed in God who came before him. In other words, even with the advent of Abraham, and all of his work to promote monotheism throughout the world, a belief in a supreme being and creator, nonetheless, God had never told Avraham, I want you to go to mankind, or I want you to go to a segment of mankind and do X, or tell them something, or do something with them. The experience of, of having prophecy for Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, all of Moshe Rabbeinu's forebears, was only a personal prophetic experience, but never did God tell any of them to do anything having to do with anyone outside of their immediately or their immediate family or immediate household. He, for the first time, God is actually telling Moshe, not only am I the supreme being, but I am also telling you to do something that I've never told anyone else to do, which is go ahead and be my proxy to affect something which I would like to accomplish for a very, very large population of people. That is, overturn Egypt and take the entire mass of the Jewish people out of Egypt, and you're going to be my emissary. Now, when Moshe Rabbeinu hears this, 
he is very perturbed because he believes completely in the Ribbono Shalom, but his problem is, how am I going to be able to prevail upon an entire population of people where there, there is a twofold difficulty? The first difficulty is they are living through a period, a very dark period in Jewish history, where having now been in Egypt for many generations, have forgotten any semblance of what it means to understand about God. They have become as idolatrous as the Egyptian people. And just like the Rambam described what was going on before the advent of Avraham, that people had completely forgotten about a supreme being, Moshe's concern was the Jews in Egypt have also forgotten about a supreme being. So how am I going to be able to go to them and discuss this idea of the supreme being, the creator of heaven and earth, has come to me. And the second difficulty that he had was, how am I going to convince them that for the first time in all of human history, this supreme being wants me as a human being to do his bidding and to give you a message that he would like to be heard and accepted and to be followed. This is unprecedented, even for those who do believe in God, this kind of behavior of being God's emissary and being sent and dispatched by God directly is unprecedented in human history. So those are the two difficulties that Moshe is having. And so the Rambam explains that the first question that Moshe asked was, the Jews are going to say to me, what is his name? And the Rambam understands that this is a euphemistic way of Moshe Rabbeinu suggesting to God that the Jewish people do not know you, Hashem. And instead of sort of um, diminishing God's honor by turning to the king of heaven and earth and saying to him that people don't know who you are, with all due respect, God, Moshe felt that that would be a disrespectful way of broaching the subject. And so instead he says, they're going to want to know what your name is. But essentially the Rambam says, that's the way Moshe was actually, what he was really suggesting in a very um, euphemistic way, in a very sort of uh, concealing what the real question was. They're not going to be able to process this idea of a supreme being. It's not part of their, of their uh, Weltanschauung. It's not part of their worldview that there should be this overall creator of heaven and earth. And God understanding that and appreciating Moshe's question says, and according to the Rambam, and this is on page 154 and 155, the Rambam explains that what God was telling Moshe is do some level of education to the elders of the people, the people who are capable of intellectual excellence, but perhaps have not been exposed to this idea because they've been living in Egypt for, for generations. I want you to educate them philosophically using an intellectual argument that there is a supreme being that is necessarily existent, who can only be defined in terms of himself. Because, and the Rambam goes into the linguistic explanation of what he means over here. The word asher, that, is always the divider between the subject and the predicate, meaning, Eheyeh is the subject. Who is being spoken about? God. Who is the being? 
And how, what is the predicate? How do you describe that God or how do you describe what is about that subject? Asher Eheyeh, God can only be defined and described in terms of himself. That is the only way that you can understand this supreme being is in terms of himself, Asher Eheyeh. And as a result of being able to only define God in terms of himself, that is synonymous for the Rambam with saying that God is the only uniquely necessarily existent being. All other things that exist in this world do not necessarily have to exist. The, the existence can continue without them. The only being upon whom all of other all every every other existent thing is dependent is this supreme being that sent me, who can only be defined in terms of himself. And the Rambam, of course, in this chapter is building upon what he has established in previous chapters. That's all that's all that we can say about God. And that's what the Shem HaMiforash actually alludes to is the idea of Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh, that I can only be defined in terms of myself. Um, so therefore, at the very bottom of page 54, accordingly, scripture makes, as it were, a clear statement that the subject is identical with the predicate. This makes it clear that he is existent, not through existence. This notion may be summarized and interpreted in the following way. The existent that is the existent or the necessarily existent. This is what demonstration necessarily leads to, namely to the view that there is a necessarily existent thing that has never been or ever will be non-existent. I shall make clear the demonstration of this thesis later on. The Rambam basically says that when I get to the second section of Morena Vuchim at the very beginning, I will explain to you how this essentially proves or sort of this statement of Eheyeh, Asher Eheyeh, proves God's existence. And essentially what God was telling Moshe is, by using just those three words, Eheyeh, Asher Eheyeh, you will be able to describe to the people that there is a supreme being, and you will be able to prove his existence to them, people who are receptive to these intellectual kinds of arguments. Now, the Rambam says, it may not be so evident to you now, how those three words can actually prove this point, but I will get there. And so the first step that Moshe was actually being uh, uh, responded to was, how am I going to present the idea of the creator of heaven and earth to a people who are not familiar with that concept at all and may not even believe that such a being exists? And God says, when you use the words, Eheyeh, Asher, Eheyeh, to the Ziknei Yisrael, Lech ve'asavta et Ziknei Yisrael, the elders of Israel, who are people who are capable of intellectual excellence, you will present this argument to them, and they will believe it. They will accept this idea of a supreme being, and that's what is meant by, in verse 18, v'shama'u lekolecha, they will listen to your voice. But there's only one, one more problem, and that is, okay, fine. Once I have duly educated the higher echelons of Israelite society, that there is a supreme being, and I represent to them that this supreme being wishes to take you out of Egypt. And they may even have a tradition that indicates to them as such, as our sages imply. Then the next question comes along, which is, naturally, they're going to say to me, well, how do we know, now that you've proven to us that such a being even exists, how do we know that that being whom you claim appeared to you actually has dispatched you? 
right? How do how can you substantiate your claim that you are now God's emissary, who is now telling you not only that he exists, but also that he wants you to do something that is unprecedented in human history, that such a supreme being would involve himself in, you know, with a mortal being and have that mortal being fulfill his will, okay? That's the second difficulty that Moshe Rabbeinu has. And for that, Hashem tells him, okay, here's some miracles. By you demonstrating miracles to the Jewish people, you will show that you have been imbued with supernatural powers to show that God himself is in some way associating with you. Even though that may be counterintuitive, that God should associate with a human being to have that human being act as God's proxy, which is an unprecedented phenomenon in all of uh, human history up to that point. Nonetheless, the act of miracles themselves will show that God is, chooses to associate with a mortal human being to do his bidding. Now that, now that we've explained this idea, we get to the very end of the chapter. The very last paragraph of chapter 63 seems to be completely a non sequitur to everything that was discussed up until this point. And he discusses other names of God that appear in Tanakh that are not descriptive of this idea of Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh. And so he talks about the name of yud Hey, just half of the Shem HaMeforash, refers similarly to the notion of the eternity of existence, because it's a derivation either of Hayah that God will always exist, these two letters Hey, And some of the commentaries suggest that Eheyeh actually has a semblance of that idea, because it has the letters yud Hey in the word Eheyeh, but it actually goes much further than that. Whereas Shaddai, Shin Dalid Yud, derives from the word Dai, meaning a sufficiency. Um, and he brings proof from the verse, the Hamalacha Haita Dayam, that when the Jews constructed the Mishkan in, at the end of the book of Exodus, when they constructed Tabernacle, it says that the work was more than enough, sufficient. That's what the word die or like dayenu, like we're going to say in the Haggadah. So the word shaddai means that God has sufficient power. The intention here being to signify that he does not need other than himself with reference to the existence of that which he has brought into existence or with reference to prolonging the latter's existence, but that his existence may he be exalted suffices for everything that exists. Then he goes into another name of God. So he's discussed Yah, he's discussed Shaddai, and now he goes into the idea of Chasin, which is a word that does not appear in the Pentateuch at all in describing God, but rather is found in Tanakh in very obscure places. But the name Chasin derives from the notion of power. Thus, and he was Chason as the oaks. This is a... This is a um, uh, a verse in the book of Amos, chapter 2, the chason hu ba'alonim, that God is strong as and, and self-sufficient as the oak. Similarly, the name rock, that God, we, we, we learned in chapter 16, that there are many times when God is described as a rock, and I refer you back to chapter 16 if you want to go back and discuss, the get those, um, look at that short chapter, and it is used sometimes to describe the tzur olamim, that God is the rock of ages, referring to a God who is completely strong and self-sufficient. 
Accordingly, it has become clear to you that all names are derived or are used equivocally as rock and others similar to it. He, may he be exalted, has no name that is not derivative except the name having four letters, which is the Shem HaMiforash, the articulate name. This name is not indicative of an attribute, but of simple existence and nothing else. Now, absolute existence implies that he shall always be, I mean, he who is necessarily existent. Understand the point at which this discourse has finally arrived, that God can only be defined in terms of his own name or, or in terms of himself. And that's the conclusion of the chapter. As I mentioned, this last chapter, which describes the name Yudhei, Shaddai, Sur, Chasin, doesn't seem to have any relationship whatsoever to the entire content of the previous chapter, unless we explain the Rambam's last point as follows. Again, the Rambam is making a clear distinction between God as he was before the advent of Moshe and the redemption of the Jews from Egypt, and God as he is once he does the thing of dispatching a human being to do his will in the world. And if you notice, at the very beginning of Exodus chapter 6, Parshat Va'era, God actually tells Moses, Va'era el Avraham el Yitzchak ve'el Yaakov ve'el Shaddai, that when I appeared to the forefathers, I appeared to them as a God of Shaddai. Ushmi Hashem lo but I had not yet informed them of the shame of the shame Hamiforash. Now, perhaps what the Rambam is trying to suggest over here is that in the ancient world, even those who did understand that there is a supreme being, like Noah, like Metushelach, like Avraham, they had an appreciation of God who was completely self-sufficient and would have no reason to dispatch a human being to do his bidding. And that is essentially what these names imply, Shaddai, that God is completely all uh, self-sufficient and does not need human aid in order to do his bidding in the world. Sur, God is the rock. Chasin, God is as strong as the oak trees. All of the things that are, all of the names that are being described in this very last paragraph of chapter 63 are descriptive of a God who is eternal, abiding, unchanging, and completely self-sufficient. And that's the, that's the term that I want to emphasize. Because really, when you consider the idea that the Rambam is imparting to us over here, God, in a sense, is essentially lowering his stature in the eyes of mankind by, by using a human intermediary in order to have his will be done. This was the great difficulty that Moshe Rabbeinu had in, in as the Meforshim point out over here, especially if you take a look at the Shem Tov commentary at the end of this chapter, this was the great reluctance that Moshe had in acting as God's emissary, is that he felt that not only would it be difficult for people to swallow, but he himself was actually participating in some kind of reduction or diminution of God's stature, whereas before he was the Tzur, he was the Shaddai, he was the Chasin, the completely self-sufficient God who does not need the puny mortal to do his bidding. Now Moshe's involvement in God's plan for redemption is changing that entire thing. And, but at the same time, God is telling Moshe that in order for this name, this Shem HaMiforash, to be fully brought down to humanity, it does become necessary for human beings to be involved in the proliferation of my will and my efforts in the world. 
In other words, Avraham was involved on this, in this process of trying to spread the name of God as a volunteer. He did his, his, his Jewish outreach, as it were, and tried to spread the name of God, but, not, but I didn't dispatch him to do that. He just felt it was his duty because he wanted the world to know God. But in order for the world to truly know God in a way that it needs to at the right time, it will become necessary for me to utilize human properties uh, in order to make that known to be the givers of the Torah. Without Moshe, there can be no Torah presented to the Jewish people. There can be no, there can be no putting the will of God into human terms. And so in order for humanity to be able to grasp the Shem HaMiforash, it becomes necessary for God to employ human intermediaries in order to uh, fulfill his desires. And that's really the sort of the delicate balance or the tension that on the one hand, the Rambam appreciates that the Shem HaMiforash, the four-letter name of God, describes the exalted being that is completely beyond human comprehension. But ironically, God says, I need a human involve I need human involvement in order for that ineffable, not understandable name and concept of godliness to be proliferated through the world. I need human involvement and human association. So it is all it's like the the great tension between transcendence and imminence all over again at the end of this chapter. Those are the points that I wanted to present you with uh, in our study of uh, chapter 63. I hope that it makes some semblance of sense to you. I'm going to uh, end the class now. Let me just see how I do that. I'm going to um, uh, I'm going to stop the share, and then we will stop the class for today. Let me wish you all a good day and a good week. Take care now, everybody.